Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Talk on Tech. I'm Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. And we're here to navigate you through the intricacies of information technology and all things Mount West Community and Technical College related. Here we are. It's uh, February 2014. The last episode we had uh, was took place in, in my kitchen, my uh, halfway destroyed kitchen, and that was in May of 2012. And here we are a year later, a year and a half later, actually, mm-hmm. and Josh and I are sitting in my kitchen right now recording <laughs> this whole thing. So uh, not not much has changed. Maybe maybe just a little thing has changed. Yeah, a little. Yeah. Um, we, we survived another year and a half of school. Um, the Xbox One and the PS4 came out. So for all of my uh, Xbox One friends out there who own one, I will just say Xbox shut down. Yes. <laughs> sorry if I just sorry if I just ruined your game or whatever you were watching there, but um, you, you can't do that to a PS4. I, I don't own either at this point. Josh, you don't either, right? No, no. no. We're, we're we're waiting. Yeah. Um, I actually bought a PS3 um, on Black Friday. That's that's, that's how, how far behind we are. Well, you know, I waited till it was cheap to get the games I wanted. Right. So, but at uh, at Mount West, um, some new things that have just happened. Uh, we just got a grant uh, successfully funded to create a graphic design option. So we're going to be trying to do these shows uh, more often. I, just, I don't think we can really guarantee weekly, but maybe maybe bi-weekly. Bi-weekly but we're going to be trying to bring you a lot of, a lot of good interviews with um, our new GIS professor that we have, uh, Teresa Literal. Uh, so she'll be on here eventually. Um, have a couple interviews with uh, Annalisha Johnson when we start getting into the graphic design option again. Uh, Brian Morgan uh, will hopefully be joining us to talk about uh, what Marshall has to offer along the lines of some of their IT classes at Marshall University and a whole lot more. So we always start off the show with some uh, news stories. So let's jump right into the news stories and get started. It has been about a year and a half, so there's a lot of catching up Josh and I have to do. So some of these stories you may have heard about, they won't be as um, uh, as fresh as what they usually are, but we still think they're important to go back and hit upon for the IT and especially the, the information security aspect. And the first one has been one that's been really um, brewing for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Target came out around December 19th and explained to their customers that hackers had stolen a large amount of, of data from them and they were thinking that that data would affect probably around hmm, potentially 40 million customers. They were thinking it was going to be credit card information and so they just wanted to let everyone know that if if anything was done on your card, any type of identity fraud, they would take care of it. Well, that was December 19th. The funny thing about these uh, breaches, these data breaches people have, is it's kind of like an iceberg. Iceberg looks to be one size on top of the water, but what you don't understand is under the water, it's massively larger. Mm-hmm. And as we start to go down, as we start to discover, things get bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, the same thing was true here with Target's case, because about a month later, on January 10th, Target came back out and said, hey, you know how we said that there was basically 40 million customers and and uh, you guys didn't need to worry because the data was encrypted. Well, it seems like the hackers took a bit more information than we thought. So the hackers have managed to steal not only 40 million people's uh, usernames and passwords and their encrypted credit cards, but they also stole an extra 30 million people's names, mailing addresses, phone numbers, and email addresses. Great personal identifiable information that could be used to masquerade as somebody. So at this point, we're, you know, halfway into February. We haven't heard it's gotten any bigger, but who's to really say right now because it's still developing. We may mm-hmm. see that it gets bigger and bigger and bigger at this point. But, yes, I'm, I'm sorry for anyone who shopped at Target um, from Black Friday to around December 15th, but be right. very vigilant. Go and change your passwords and, and make sure if you see any weird bank account information activity, that type of thing, make sure you report that. Right, right. Um, and then along with that, um, <clears throat> uh, the target breach, um, they're finding out that now the target hackers were, not only were they smart enough to gain that much information um, 
via, you know, stealing all the um, credit card and uh, debit card information through the data. Um, they're able to, now they're trying to link up the information from those accounts to the geographic location as to where they are. So if you went shopping in one city, they're trying to make sure that the information that they stole gets sold to people from that city so that the banks and things don't target them and say, oh, wait, why are you doing in Las Vegas? You live in, you know, Ironton, Ohio. It's very funny you bring up Las Vegas, Josh. um, (laughs) You could could explain the situation you ran into. Yeah, um, along with our... um, uh, attempted to go out to Las Vegas for a conference. I made it out. Patrick got stuck in Chicago in the airport. We hit the first major snowstorm, really, I guess, of the season. Yeah, basically, it was around. It was a well. It was the, the right conference after. was supposed to take place right around January sixth. I knew it was right, the sixth, right yeah. in the middle of that, and so so it was a giant yeah. snowstorm that hit the Midwest and and also you know the eastern area like like where we are, and so Josh and I were supposed. To both go to Las Vegas, and mm-hmm. he made it without luggage, and uh, <laughs> no. and I made it to only Chicago. Yet my luggage somehow made it out there, so we both were in different cities right. using our credit cards. Right. Um, so <clears throat> basically, I made it that whole three days. And mm-hmm. my last day there, I had to stay an extra day because of the flight situation. Back the last day that morning, when I attempted to check into. My new hotel, um, my bank had finally blocked my credit card based on, or excuse me, my debit card based on where I was at. And I've traveled a lot before, um, and it's I've used my debit card a lot of places, and it's something that they've never they've never done up to this point. And they basically, I called them, and they quickly, you know, had me go through all the security steps. It was probably three or four different questions and codes that I had to try to remember. And then said, yeah, well, you know, we, we turned it off to, uh, or we stopped uh, access to it because we didn't know that you were in Las Vegas. We thought somebody had stolen your information. And uh, basically it was my fault because I didn't notify them and say, hey, I'm going to be out here for this, from this date to this date. Just so you know, if something weird happens and you see that information, don't turn it off. Well, you know, it was easy enough to get it turned back on. It took maybe 20 minutes for it all to, to get processed and, and get turned um, access back to it. But basically what they're trying to do with these new incredibly smart um, hackers that have done this is they're trying to link the uh, uh, accounts up to where they're within that geographic location that they were used. So they're hoping that the people are from the local area so that their banks aren't going to flag it if they get used again. So So like if we had both gone and shopped at the Barbersville Target. Right. Um, right outside of Huntington, mm-hmm. they're hoping we actually were locals. We weren't right. actually visiting, exactly. Because then the idea would be, like you were saying, it would be local traffic. The mm-hmm. bank wouldn't flag it. You know, in right. your in your case, it may have been like the bank picked an arbitrary number, like a thousand dollars or two thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and they said if it gets over that, that starts to get it's suspicious. Probably, right, right. So they're trying to sell it. You're saying they're trying to sell it to people around those target locations mm-hmm. with the hope that's where you live, right? And that'll go undetected the whole month because it'll look like it's you. Exactly, and that's that's looking like that. They, that's probably already happening, and they just don't know it yet. Now, Target um, is just banking on the fact that you've checked your accounts and that you you know you know they've tried to notify people and things. Luckily, uh, me and my wife had went actually the week before this happened. We were at Target and done some shopping, and so we barely missed this big Target breach because I'm sure. Excuse me, we probably would have been, you know, hit as well. So I'm glad that that happened the way it did. But um, basically, you know, it's it's just another sign that um, people are getting smarter. Um, Security is going to have to keep continually being beefed up because there's always going to be this problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, as things get more convenient, it gets more convenient for good uses right. and also more convenient for malicious uses. Right. Well, you know, along the same lines, one of the other the other big breaches that we missed while we were gone um, was the Adobe breach. Back in September of 2013, there was a breach uh, on Adobe's account or, or their website and a 3.8 gig file that had over 150 million Adobe accounts was stolen. 
And so it was it was usernames and uh, hash passwords, and they found out about it in October. And so Adobe went ahead and, and told people that they figured maybe about 2.9 million accounts had encrypted credit card information. So originally when they came out, they started warning people who they thought credit cards might have been susceptible. So that was 3 million people. A couple weeks later, they said, oh, by the way, probably about 38 million users were affected. Maybe not necessarily your credit card information, but you mm-hmm. really should change your username and password. And I think we've talked about this before on this podcast, but you really shouldn't use the same username and password for all websites. But right. Adobe was emailing those people, and I was one of them they emailed. I've bought Adobe Adobe products before, so they, they emailed me to basically say, you need to change this password. We've actually done it for you already. We've changed your password, and when you first log back in, you'll have to reset it. If you use this account anywhere else, you better make sure you go and change it. Because as, as Josh said, hackers are getting smarter and smarter and smarter. What their hope is, is that you use the exact same username and password for Adobe.com right. that you use for PayPal.com, that you use for eBay.com, right. that you use for Amazon.com. And so you need to go and change that information. So they had gone from basically 3 million accounts, and that ballooned to 38 million. And now, that was all the way back in September, now, at the end of October, they even said, at this point, 150 million people. So they're starting to see the numbers getting higher and higher and higher. Now, at this point, we're not talking about 150 million people whose credit card information was stolen, but we are talking about 150 million people who had some or all of their information, a lot like what uh, Josh and I were talking about with the Target breach, where it's the fact that some people might have had their name exposed. Some people might have had their name and address and credit card information exposed. So, once again, just like the iceberg, it keeps getting bigger and bigger underneath the water. So, that's something you need to watch out for. And if you've ever used Adobe.com to buy any products, to register, to talk on their forums, anything like that, even if you haven't gotten an email from them, you should be vigilant enough to go and change that information and also be aware of whatever information you use there might be in the hands of hackers, and you should go and change passwords or user accounts on other services that's using that as well. Yeah, just to reiterate the fact that they're just—they're not necessarily going to be going in to for your Adobe information. They're—they're they're banking on the fact that either you have bought stuff using your Adobe information, and that there's credit card information stored there, or that you're using the same username and password on other sites which is very, very, very common practice that we all need to make sure that we're not doing just so when things like this happen, you know, it doesn't um, hopefully, you know, get get to the point where you're losing money somewhere. Exactly. <clears throat> so, again, um, more things with uh, we seem to be hitting a lot of security <laughs> issues. Um, this was uh, January 20, uh, 2014. Um, Apple.com apparently has a the best... Um, password protecting site um, out of the 100 most used um, uh, what would you consider this e, I would call it e-retailers e-retailers probably. okay um, yeah e-commerce that's what it is okay mm-hmm. so a study was done by uh, password manager Dashlane um, I've never really heard of them before but they did a study from January 17th through the January 22nd and they conducted um using different researchers and stuff, um, basically scored uh, a lot of websites, um, Amazon, Dick's Sporting Goods, all a lot of the big major e-commerce sites, and they've ranked them all. And what's surprising about it is, for instance, like Apple scored 100 out of 100. They've, they've got everything good to go. Microsoft's right behind them with a 65, which is a large gap from 100 to 65. So yeah. that starts to tell you. And then as we go down the list... Um, a lot of major retailers start to pop up. J.C. Penney, and then on down Macy's, um, Amazon, which is very worrisome for me if, uh, because I use Amazon quite a bit, is a negative forty. Yeah. On this scale, right behind them is Walmart, same negative forty. And then all the way down towards the bottom of the list, we have Dick Sporting Goods, a website called Karma Loop, and then MLB. dot com is a negative seventy five. Wow. Um, now, this is the first time I've heard of some sort of research being done like this. 
Um, but basically what this is saying is uh, these websites are allowing very simple passwords such as 12345 and just the word password. They're not making you do uppercase, lowercase, special characters, and things like that. So if you're at the bottom, if they're at the bottom of this list, they're pretty much allowing near anything to be accepted as a password, unlike Apple, where they're making you uppercase, lowercase, special character, numbers, mm. letters, all that kind of stuff, um, not being able to use anything associated with your name. So that's something to check out. Um, they said there was 24 different criteria they were looking at. As you mentioned, could people use simple passwords? And then they also said, did they actually send you your password via email and clear text? Right. Which so <laughs> now I, I know that Amazon worries me, but I was happy to see that uh, Newegg, Newegg was up there with right. Microsoft. They're, they're they were, right behind Chegg, and Chegg is the book reseller that mm-hmm. a lot of students are using yeah. now. And they said basically the scores could go from 100 to negative 100. Basically, they mm-hmm. all started at zero. Right. And if they did a good practice, they got positive points. If they did a bad practice, they got negative points. So. When you start seeing that Amazon's in like the negative forties, right? That means Amazon's doing more uh, poor practices than they are mm-hmm. good practices. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean that your account necessarily at that particular retailer or or store is gonna get hacked, mm-hmm. but it's the fact that they're allowing you to be complacent in security, right? So if they ever get hacked, your password is gonna probably be very very easily cracked mm-hmm. or. Um, well, as we'll see here when I get to my next story, people may already be trying to guess your very simple password if you've chosen to go ahead and use that. Right. And one last thing along with mm-hmm. that, uh, just for example, rounding, rounding out the one, two, three, four, five, the top five, mm-hmm. the fifth one on the list with a score of 60, positive oh, 60, wow. is Target. Now, this is or, or was done January the 22nd through the 24th. I do not know if Target, when they were trying to notify people of the breach and accounts and all that kind of stuff, I do not know if they changed their policy on what your passwords and things have to be. Mm -hmm. But if they didn't, if this was the same policy that they had in place prior to, that's something to think about as well. Knowing that they're, you know, according to this, that they're ranking pretty highly um, in strength of password, what you have to do, and it was still able to be hacked... You know, well, it's, not trying to worry people, but yeah, you know, it's, just it's favorable. Be aware of that. Yeah, it's favorable to think that if uh, Target had that high of a score, that maybe it will be difficult for hackers to get into it. I mean, right. I know the hackers stole a file. Right. They managed to find a way into the system. That may have been one of the twenty-four criteria used to see how protected you have your stuff. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, that is something to definitely think about. That if Target was in the sixties, and they managed to get hacked, and people have your passwords now. What does that mean for companies like Amazon or, heaven forbid, MajorLeagueBaseball.com? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you're – maybe you're buying right. some jerseys there or something, but your right. fantasy your fantasy baseball league uh, might be in jeopardy. Someone might get in there and, and trade your players. Yeah, two more I just saw in here, too, with Valentine's Day right around the corner. Edible Arrangements and 1-800-Flowers are both in the negative 45 and negative 46 categories. So hopefully you're not buying a bunch of people um, flowers you don't know about. Right. Well, I mean, if I see on this list too, if you're going to buy your Victoria's Secret, maybe you want to buy it from Amazon, which had a negative 40, because Victoria's Secret's own site had a negative 44. So you might be just just a little bit safer buying the Victoria's Secret stuff from Amazon. Right, right. All going along with Valentine's Day. Yes. Now, Talking about some of that criteria they were referring to about how easy it was to uh, to create a simple password, you know, a password like your first name or one two three four five six something like that. Our next story here is talking about what were the top twenty five worst passwords of two thousand thirteen. There was a survey done on this by security firm Splash Data, which they go ahead every year and compile a list of the most commonly stolen passwords. And so typically, the most commonly stolen password it is usually a word like password. It's mm-hmm. dominated the ranks. I mean, just simple, lowercase, P-A-S-S-W-O-R-D. But this year, surprisingly, password has been overtaken by the super sophisticated password of 123456. 
So the the problem that you need to think about it when you when you see this article, which uh, we do always post all of our articles up on our Twitter account, mm-hmm. which is uh, twitter.com/talkontechmctc. The thing you need to look at is these twenty five passwords here. You need to imagine that every single hacker out there knows what these are. Or they always try to go and find this newest list. And these are probably the very first 25 passwords they're going to try to use to break into your account. Because they're hoping that you are lazy and that you use one of these types of passwords because their job is easy. You are are then low-hanging fruit. Very simple to get into. Some of the common passwords, though, a lot of them are just simple strings of numbers like 1 through 8, 1 through 9. Um, of course, the word password, uh, I love you is in here, admin, Photoshop, shadow, sunshine, princess. Now, in a, in a Security Plus class or any type of uh, network security class, they would tell you never to put simple words in there because hackers often do what are called dictionary attacks, mm-hmm. where they basically have a list of all the words that would, that would be in a dictionary, for example, that they can run through and try to break into your account. If they can guess your password within the first million guesses, that may sound like a lot. But a computer is so sophisticated these days, a million guesses could be tried in roughly the span of 15 to 30 seconds. Right. I mean, it's very, very sophisticated. You want to make your password so hard that it takes trillions of times to figure it out because you want that hacker to have to work to get that information. So it it is sad that so many people use simple passwords like, for some reason, Princess is number 22 on the list. (laughs) I would never imagine that. But you shouldn't name it after your pet. You shouldn't name it after your name. You definitely shouldn't name it after your date of birth either because the amount of information we give off on Facebook is very, very easy to guess that type of thing. So try to make sure you have a sophisticated password. And I think these days, too, they, they typically talk... They want you to have more than 15 characters if you can right? because the systems are getting so much more faster uh, on how they can break these. And, um, I mean, it's getting scary. we got to stay one step ahead of the hackers at this point. Right. So now we're going to go ahead and turn it over to the interview portion of the show. Uh, we already have an interview with Donna Donovan talking about our criminal justice degree. Uh, this interview was actually done about a year ago. Uh, So some of the information might be slightly updated now. And and when you hear it, if she's talking about particular semesters in which it would be implemented, just know that that curriculum and that particular option is already now available. Today I'm joined once again by Professor Donna Donovan. We're going to talk today about the criminal justice option we have here at Mount West Community Technical College. Hello, Donna. Hi, Patrick. Let's talk a little bit today about the criminal justice option. First, who would be interested in, and what type of thing would they be doing, basically? Well, let me start by saying that the criminal justice option is one of our newer options here at Mount West. Um, Mount West traditionally has a, a longstanding history of cooperation with the West Virginia State Police Academy in terms of providing training for both state troopers and what are called basic officers, which are city police and sheriff's deputies who attend the academy. And out of the interest that came in those programs, there was some feeling by the general public that there was interest in criminal justice courses that Mm -hmm. would apply perhaps to different areas. And so over a period of time, this criminal justice program began to come toward the forefront a little bit. And we're now looking at people who might be attracted to other areas of the criminal justice field, such as um, probation officers, both adult and juvenile probation officers, um, correctional officers might be interested in this, um, people who perhaps might want to work for TSA or some other federal agency could use this as a starting point for their training before going on to the specific training required. If you're interested in working for the Department of Natural Resources, um, being a private investigator, if you're interested in loss prevention or private security for events or persons, this might be a good place to introduce some of the training that would be necessary for those jobs. Okay. Well, sounds like a wide variety. Okay, well, let's go ahead and talk here about some of the classes they would need to take to get prepared for those different uh, careers. Um, in general, we always are going to have some general education requirements, um, a written communication, 
uh, a math course uh, as well as a, a science or or uh, even interpersonal communications do you find in this particular area that these are as important as you said uh, in the in the previous interview we'd done uh, about the paralegal studies yes i do i believe that the ability to communicate effectively orally and in writing is critical to success in almost any field And in particular, when you're dealing with a field that is closely related to or works closely with law enforcement, the ability to document, to write clear, concise, coherent reports, Mm -hmm. um, to create the necessary um, line of communication is, is vitally important. The ability to do computations, especially if you're talking about investigations where measuring triangulation might come in. Um, those types of things, I think, are going to be much more important to people who are interested in this field that they have those as an absolute skill. Mm-hmm. Like, like if you were, if you were one of the state police who were having to to measure off um, uh, an accident crime scene, you know, like a, a car mm-hmm. crash, you need to be able to calculate how fast was the person going. So, and I see yet, what you mean. Those um, students who are actually in those programs at the mm-hmm. police academy receive. Um, specific training just in that Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's more of an advanced type of skill right but I'm talking about even just basic investigation for a burglary um, or for someone who's claiming vandalism and and wants a private investigator to view the damage and make a report about the damage for their personal use or for their insurance company you have to be able to communicate well and you have to have basic math skills okay well, let's talk about some of the core requirements that they have for the criminal justice uh, option here. Um, the first class here is CJS 101, Introduction to Public Safety. Public safety is a, a broad-based intro course that looks at multiple fields of employment in the criminal justice field. It's not designed to give someone all the information that they need mm-hmm. for a particular field, but just simply to give an overview okay. and also to, to give some specific requirements. Um, Patrick, one of the hard things that sometimes we have to talk about with some of these programs that people are interested in is the fact that although you might be interested in a particular program, there might be a concern that you have about being accepted to that program or finding employment. Right. And so when we talk about the criminal justice program to people who are interested in it, I think it's only fair that there are a couple of hard things you have to talk about up front. Um, number one, do you have a police record? <laughs> um, if, if you have a criminal <laughs> record, <laughs> in, in all fairness, we, we need to tell you that your job outlook in this particular field might not be good. It's not uncommon for employers to require fingerprints, to require a background check, to require a criminal background check, um, for which they might even ask you to pay. Um, you might be required to submit to drug, random drug testing um, in, in some of these fields. If you have a felony conviction, Ooh. it could be um, a problem in, in terms of gainful employment. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes we need to just be upfront about that because right. I know there's a lot of interest on TV about programs like CSI and mm-hmm. um, law enforcement, Boston Legal, some of those things have been around for a while. And, and people see this as a great field to get into for the excitement factor. Yes. But understand that there might be things in your, in your background that could be an employment concern for you in this field and so I, I like to be very upfront with that well i would even say uh, along those same lines even on the it side if you plan to become someone who's going to be working with law enforcement and you want to become a, an ethical hacker or something like that the integrity of the person in question that you're hiring to to possibly mm-hmm. hack into your own company and then report on what they found is of utmost importance, just like it would be from a law enforcement side. Absolutely. To make sure you know this person and there's no skeletons in their closet and, and everything is, is up front. So the ethics part and especially the integrity of their uh, and their honesty, yeah, it needs to be taken into account or else you're going to have a really hard time finding employment. And it's not to say I'm, I may have come across perhaps as a little <clears throat> harsher than I wanted to. 
Because it's not to say that every person who's ever had a boo-boo yeah. would be automatically disqualified from these employments. I've had people say to me, oh, you know, when I was 18, I got an underage consumption ticket. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a real possibility that's not going to have a negative impact yes. on your ability to work in, in any of these fields. Yes. What they're, you know, what they're looking at is your overall presentation of yourself and your overall history and background mm-hmm. as opposed to one minor mistake that you may have made when you were very young and somewhat foolish. But I do think it's important that people know that up front rather than consider a career in cor- as a corrections officer mm-hmm. and then find out that they're not eligible. Yeah, because I would think this this field almost more than any other these people need need to be stewards of um, honesty. They need to be the the shining knights. They're because, the keepers of the gate. Yeah, you need to be spotless almost. And you know you, there can be things here and there, but um, they they don't want to have to worry about your name mm-hmm. coming up years from now. That would tarnish the reputation reputation of their mm-hmm. company or their individual law enforcement division. That type of thing. So. Um, I'm, I'm going to speak pretty frankly and, and hope that this isn't offensive, but a couple of semesters ago we had a student enrolled in a course who um, whose name appeared in the police blotter oh. over, over the course of the semester in which they were taking the criminal justice. intro to criminal justice course <laughs> and um, intro to public safety. And the instructor took them aside and said, we need to talk. Um, that that's a very difficult position to put an instructor in. Although I was grateful that the instructor was willing to take the student aside mm-hmm. and say, "If you continue down this path, this is not going to be a career choice for you simply because of yes what people will find on your record." So, um, I I, I do like to tell that up front, and right. usually in that intro to public safety or intro to corrections class, as we call it sometimes, um, the instructor will have that conversation with right. students and say. Here are the things I need to tell you, and particularly if you're applying for federal employment mm-hmm. um, with the FBI, um, with the FBI's Fingerprint Center in Parkersburg, with TSA, with the Federal Marshal's Office, um, they do expect you to have an absolutely spotless record. Yeah, because they're going to be putting you in a position of, of utmost security. I mean, you're going to have a lot of power there, and they want to make sure they have the right person right. for that job. Well, I also see here, after the introduction to public safety... Uh, there's a LAW class, which is Interview and Investigation 255. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, That's a course that's a crossover from the Paralegal Studies Program. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see that with the Criminal Justice Program and the Paralegal Studies Program, our students have the option to cross boundaries a little bit and and select courses from each of those programs that may be applicable to what they do or in which they might have a a pretty deep-seated interest, Um, particularly in the criminal investigations and criminal procedures area. Mm -hmm. The interviewing and investigations class is designed to teach students some enhanced skill levels in terms of interviewing process, not only for clients but now for expert witnesses, for seeking out witnesses, for doing what sometimes is referred to as cold calling, when you go and knock on people's doors and say, hi, did you see, did you hear, can you give me any information about a particular case, Mm -hmm. posting notices in the paper. They learn to locate expert witnesses. Um, Interestingly enough, tonight, right before I came here, my interviewing and investigations class was at the forensics training house mm. here on Marshall's campus for two and a half hours working a mock crime scene, mm-hmm. um, learning how to actually do fingerprints, what the process is, um, what it's like to try to get a match. We worked both an indoor and outdoor crime scene, learned about chain of evidence, preservation, transportation of um, things like electronics that are found at a crime scene and what the processes for packing those making sure the battery stays charged Mm -hmm. um, blocking signals from going in or out so that they can be transported so that the data can be retrieved Um, it's a very very interesting course a lot of hands-on activities so you get a feel for what um, actual on the job work is like a couple of other courses in that core Mm -hmm. one of the things that makes this criminal justice program a little bit different is that we have a core of five classes mm-hmm. that are absolutely required. And then outside those five, students can pick and choose courses from their areas of interest if they have a particular focus that they want. And, of course, the core is the intro to public safety, interview mm-hmm. and investigations, 
and fundamentals of criminal law. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a difference between criminal law and procedure and criminal procedure. Procedures are what happen. The law is what is. The law is what you break. Okay. Okay. And the procedure is what happens to you after you break the law. So there's a separate study of, of criminal law, how crimes are defined by statute, what elements are required um, to prove that crime, and at what reasonable proof they have to be. And, of course, that's beyond a reasonable doubt. What type of evidence has to be there, what can be used, what can't be. Um, and when you get into criminal procedures, you learn that, for instance, things that are obtained illegally can't be used in trial. Okay, um, they're going to get thrown out. There have been some pretty high-profile cases where evidence has not been able to be used because of the manner in which it was obtained, and so students have to learn the difference between the law and what it requires, and the actual procedural process to bring that into play. Okay, so you're saying the difference between someone being charged with murder and what that means, and then the process of them going through the court case and yes. possibly being convicted. Yes. Okay. Okay. And, you know, for instance, one of, you know, we had a recent very high-profile case involving Casey Anthony. Uh-huh. And there were a number of people who expressed very openly their um, anger about the fact that she was not convicted. And it's it's very hard to discuss this in a class because it's such an emotional thing. Right. But if you do research into that case and you look at, for instance, what Florida requires for the proof of of murder in a case as such as she was charged, there were two key elements that could not be met, um, and that's what created a problem. If and if you go and look at all the analysis, it will identify what those elements are, and you'll mm-hmm. see over and over those two things coming up. And so we did a brief study of that in class the other day and looked at why. It's important to understand what the elements are and how they're used in a case mm-hmm. as opposed to what what the law says mm-hmm. in broad general terms. The law defines the crime, sets out the elements, but now what does it mean to have to meet those? Mm-hmm. And what happens if you can't? So that's why we look um, at the difference between the law itself and then the fundamentals of, of criminal investigations and how that leads to criminal procedure. Well, I know... And I know that Hollywood is not an exact depiction, but when oh, yeah. you when you watch stuff like Law and Order, oh dear, you you see in there where they're getting um, evidence and more evidence and more evidence and more evidence, and after you've watched about five or six seasons on TNT, like I have, you get to the point where you realize the reason they're collecting all that evidence is because when they go to trial, they really have one shot to yes. to, to prove this. And they need, as you were kind of saying, they need to hit all those points or else a conviction isn't even possible. And so I would think they're trying to to take their time and get as much evidence as they can to make sure they hopefully have a pretty open and shut case. And and that is what I think a lot of people lack understanding about, and especially because of what we now call in the legal field the CSI effect. People watch CSI, and they see how evidence is collected and scanned and turned over in just a matter of moments. Right. Or, say, a hypothetical day. Right. Maybe two on TV. And mm-hmm. it it creates a public perception that all evidence can be gathered and processed that quickly. Right. And so sometimes people don't understand that. It might be four weeks before you get DNA back. Right. It's not 20 minutes like it is on TV. But it is true, though, isn't it, that that you, if at all possible, you want to go ahead and, and get your evidence ahead of time because you'll eventually start to have a cold case where pe- oh, yes. witnesses will not be able to recollect or have a, have a recognition of, of people and previously. And you want to gather that evidence as quickly and as thoroughly as possible and mm-hmm. establish the appropriate chain of evidence so that it can't be questioned. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is that sometimes juries don't understand that, that, that the reality time lapse is different from right. the, the TV time lapse. And I, I think that that's one of the things that this program helps people. We get sometimes uh, people who are interested in the program who are interested primarily because of what they've seen on TV. Right. And so it, it, it helps them understand that 
yes, that's how this works. It's just that sometimes in a different time frame, and it's much more difficult and time-consuming to collect that evidence than I think people realize. Well, on CSI, it never goes to court because everyone always, uh, you know, goes ahead and professes their their guiltiness. Certainly. If they were watching Law and Order, they'd be like me and going, did that just say trial day 175 on the screen? And they would have a better appreciation for, (laughs) good Lord, this trial's been going on almost 180 days. Well, when you look at, um, for instance, the O.J. Simpson case. Mm Mm-hmm. And how long the O.J. Simpson case went and that closing arguments took over three weeks just to sum the thing up for that poor jury who had been there for months. Um, And, of course, the more evidence, really the more substantive chance you have, but still it's it's very time-consuming. It's not 60 minutes with commercials. No, Um, no. Which is kind of an interesting thing, and, and so sometimes people come into this, and they also come into it sometimes confusing it with forensic science or with forensic science technology, um, and that is a completely different field. Okay. Okay. So, because these are, these are actually the, the cops, if you will. These are not the lab techs in the background who are doing they are the... They are not the lab techs. Right. They need to have some experience and understanding and knowledge of what a lab tech does. Mm-hmm what the collection process is, why it's important, what a chain of evidence is, and why it's important. But these are generally not the people who are doing the primary collection of evidence, okay? that That's a different major altogether, okay. if you will, and one that is very science-oriented. Okay. Okay? Um, our, our job is to try to teach people basic skills for employment in this particular field. Mm-hmm. The knowledge of criminal procedure the knowledge of the criminal process and of criminal law, how investigations take place, um, how to assist appropriately in an investigation. And, of course, if you're looking at a law enforcement career as a police officer, sheriff's deputy, state trooper, um, some, a corrections officer, something that's in that same realm, then you're going to want to choose a different set of electives than right. someone who's interested primarily in private investigations, in um, working, for instance, for the FBI and the Fingerprint Center and working for the DNR. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have a a large selection of elective courses that people can choose from following that core based on their interest in this Mm -hmm. field. And and those courses run anywhere from introduction to law, that general law one and two, legal research and writing, for instance, for someone who might want to be a private investigator. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at um, intro to corrections. Obviously, if you have a feel for corrections, police operations and procedure, police arsenal and weapons. Um, Those are definitely going to be for someone who wants to go into the actual yes. state police or, the or actual, local police. Yes, into law enforcement or corrections. Um, police organization administration, the role in crime and delinquency, the, pro- the juvenile justice process, and then we have some electives um, that rotate from semester to semester that are not offered every semester but are available. Okay. Well, um, yeah, the, the, you, have an, you have an extensive amount of, of electives that could allow someone to help cater themselves into that field. Um, I did just see one extra uh, core class. We had we talked about the intro to public safety, the interview and investigation, fundamentals of criminal law and criminal investigation. But then the last one, which kind of also makes me think about uh, law and order, is first on the scene. I'm guessing this is uh, actually setting up a crime scene, making sure it doesn't um, get actually, tampered no, with. Actually, um, no. EME first on scene is has primarily been known as a first responder course. Oh. And it's taught to those folks who might be in a law enforcement <clears throat> setting, who might be the first on scene at an accident, mm-hmm. or in a position where they might have to give aid to someone who is injured. Oh, okay. Um, it's designed to teach them how to provide appropriate first aid while waiting for EMTs and paramedics. Oh, okay. So not what I was thinking. Like you're the first at the crime scene, so we need to secure it. But uh, but that makes sense. So they can. That's um, actually covered in um, Intro to Public Safety okay. and Fundamentals of Criminal Law and Patrol Operations and Procedures. Okay. All of those classes talk about how to secure a crime scene, how to prevent contamination of a crime scene, mm-hmm. um, how not to let the media into the crime scene or photograph the crime scene prior to the arrival of the technicians. Yeah, kind of hard to uh, 
Kind of hard to try to hold up evidence when everybody in the world already knows about it because they saw it on 6 o'clock news. <laughs> or it's been contaminated. That's because true. Because people have been through there, have walked. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, and have created a problem with that. So, But, no, I, I, hate, I hate to disappoint you, but EME first on scene mm. is actual advanced first aid. Okay. Well, that, that's not disappointing at all. I just uh, wanted to throw it out there because maybe someone else was thinking like, like I might have been. Um, last question I've got for you along the lines of, of this particular option. Do you know of any um, technology issues that may actually come into play for someone in the criminal justice side of things, like um, I'd say especially with their data mm-hmm. and, and collection, but any particular areas similar to what we talked about in the paralegal studies? That, that someone who might be the state police examiner's um, IT guy or someone who might be working on um, something for a paralegal or a, a private eye, I mean, private investigator, something like that, they might have to keep in mind about the information that those, those people have, keep, or procedures they would need to follow. Well, there are a couple of things that come to mind. Um, one of them is obviously the forensics and recovery um, smartphones. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we learned today when we were at the forensic training center was how to appropriately take a smartphone into evidence and how it has to be packed mm-hmm. so that signals are blocked. You know, mm-hmm. with some of the older phones, e- email messages or text messages delete as the box gets full. The older ones delete, the newer ones come in. So if someone knows they've lost their phone and it contains incriminating evidence, they could actually flood their inbox with text messages and delete the old ones and destroy that evidence. Um, Phones are, interestingly enough, wrapped in aluminum foil. Mm, to make, create a Faraday cage. To create a Faraday cage and to, or, and, and or placed in paint cans. Oh, okay. Um, which also blocks the signal. And then there are special mesh bags mm-hmm. that the phones can be transported in. And they are almost automatically plugged into a charger. Yes. To make sure that the phone doesn't go dead because if it's password protected, mm-hmm. um, and there are certain phones particularly that are difficult, like Blackberries, once the password's on there, it's it's very difficult to get into that phone and retrieve that data. So you need to be aware of, of what's necessary to transport and retrieve data from from phones, from mm-hmm. personal computers, from iPads, from a hard drive on someone's computer at home. And that's particularly true in criminal instances where someone has received emails or might have inappropriate material on their computer um, that would have to be recovered in order for that person to be charged um, for tracking, mm-hmm. uh, for fraud, uh, both prevention and for location, right. for forensics, computer forensics and recovery, um, and offender databases. Well, I know um, with regards to the phones, a lot of the phones do keep a little bit of GPS data in there based on the last um, the last towers that they mm-hmm. hit. And um, in, a sec- in a security class that I was taking, they talked about putting them in bags that would go ahead and create mm-hmm. Faraday cages. But also something I'd already known about with computers, you walk in and there's still something on the screen of the computer. One of the first things they tell you is document the volatile information first. If it's on the screen, take a picture of it. Make sure it doesn't get mm-hmm. unplugged because you need that documented. And then on the computer as well as the phone, you've got the RAM of the, of mm-hmm. the device. And when you turn it off, you'll lose that information. So uh, plugging it in definitely helps. But then they'd also talked about, I'd never thought about it, but you'd be able to know the, the, the last towers that it had accessed. If the phone got turned off, that information would have gone away. And if you'd have driven it from point A to point B and turned it back on, that information would be different. So if you were trying to figure out maybe where someone who got murdered had been recently, you'd have lost that key evidence to that. Right. So, um, I mean, it's very, very fascinating. You mentioned computers. Uh, I'm sure people have researched this, but if they haven't, do not go into uh, to a crime scene and just hook up a second hard drive and start copying information no. from one computer to the other. You need to use special read-only uh, cable connectors that will make you a forensically identical copy, and it has to be bit by bit because they may have data they've deleted off of mm-hmm. that hard drive that's still there. You don't just want to copy the files off. You want to copy every single bit because they may have hidden things or they may have deleted things and left traces and you want to make sure you get those 
So this is a very, very interesting field, though, I think. One other thing that's mm-hmm. kind of interesting to me that I was doing some research on the other day, um, people who work for the Department of Transportation, the DOT, yes, and you see them out on the highway, you know, doing enforcement with the Are they like the people you're saying the big like trucks. if you're, oh, you don't mean like the people that drive up and down to see if you've broken down. You no. mean like the way stations. I mean, not just the way stations, but the Department of Transportation cruisers that are on the highway looking for violators. Um, trucks who are driving too fast, who, trucks who are driving over the load, trucks who hmm. um, have not checked in at the way station. I haven't seen them. And, of course, now if you come near the way stations, you'll see the big electronic, I call them booms, that are near the way station that can read the electronic transmitters in a truck. Really? That can actually read their weight as they pass under that. And so unless they're flagged to turn in, mm-hmm. they're assumed to be okay. Um, truck drivers, many of them now keep an electronic log as opposed to the old paper logs. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what they have to look at now is can those logs be altered? Right. Um, because there are restrictions on driving time, driving limits, um, for safety reasons, and they've discovered that people are altering those electronic logs um, to allow them to drive longer, farther, faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's going to be a need for the type of technology that will monitor that as well and to see if those have been able to be altered and how to prevent them right from being altered it seems like any new uh any new uh convenience we get can also be used as a as a to, for ill will i heard somewhere one time that that technology was a two-edged sword mm-hmm. and i believe that i believe that's true because for all the wonderful things that it does it just opens up a whole new level of possibilities of things that need to be watched. It does. I guess, you know, the wiretapping, the hacking, all the different things that that can be done. And all nice. those things, I think, are a legitimate part of this field. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I appreciate your time, Donna, on being able to talk to us here about the criminal justice studies uh, option. And uh, as, as I said in the previous podcast, if anyone has any questions about anything in this particular field, you're more than welcome to send us any information uh, that you want to know about to talkontech at gmail.com or on our Twitter page at talkontechmctc, and we'll definitely make sure it gets to Donna and, and we get you an answer. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that's the end of our show, our first show back from a long hiatus. And uh, as always, if you want to talk to us or you want to suggest articles for us for the show, you can send us a link at Twitter. We are TalkOnTechMCTC at Twitter. And our Gmail account is TalkOnTech at gmail.com. For this episode, I am Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. Have a week.